Welcome to the Original Doll Iconography. I'm your host, James Rodriguez. I'm the Original Doll. I unpackage music with the people who create it. And at the same time, we give back to charity. For more information, visit theoriginaldoll.com. Big shout out to my Patreon community. Because of you, we can keep this thing going. And as with every episode of the Original Doll, any audio recording ripping stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. So if you see anything leaked, please report it to the webmaster. Now, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about one of the biggest songs of all time, I Will Always Love You. We're going to talk about the creation of it from Dolly Parton's days through Linda Ronstant, Whitney Houston, and the princess of pop, Britney Spears. We're going to get right to this. Thank you so much. On with the show. The original doll. Date. April 24th, 1993. Place. Kentwood, Louisiana. Event, Britney Spears Day. At 11-year-old Britney Spears was on her way to Orlando to begin production on a new season of The Mickey Mouse Club. Before she left Kentwood, the town threw her a going-away event and honored it as Britney Spears Day. At the event, the rural town would hear Britney singing the Dolly Parton-written Whitney Houston rendition of I Will Always Love You. What is the origin of this song? Did it have importance to the life of Britney Spears, or Whitney Houston, or Dolly Parton? Are there parallels between these three global superstars? 60 years ago and 500 miles away from Kentwood, Louisiana, a country singer named Porter Wagner had a country music television show in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, Wagner would always feature a girl singer. There were no female headliners on the show and very little female representation on TV or country radio. For the year 1960, there were no hot country number one songs by a female artist. There would not be a number one record on this chart until July of 1961. So a year and a half, at least, with no female vocalists at number one. Now, this is something that has plagued country radio from the beginning and is still an issue today. Five years ago, radio consultant Keith Hill discussed this with Country Aircheck, which happens to be the leading force in country radio trade publication. Hill stated... If you want to make ratings in country radio, take females out. His reason, which he backs by data, women spend more time listening to country radio and statistics show they enjoy hearing male artists more than women. Trust me, I play great female records and we've got some right now. They're just not the lettuce in our salad. The lettuce is Luke Bryan and Blake Shelton, Keith Urban, and artists like that. The tomatoes of our salad are the females. Now Hill concluded that, the best way to optimize is to make all the radio stations sound exactly the same. Enter Bro Country. Turn on a country station and you have a very good chance of hearing Blake Shelton, Jason Aldean, Florida Georgia Line, or Luke Bryan. Pierce consider Bro Country subpar country music with its continual referencing of drinking and driving and partying. Not in that order, of course. Looking into the 2019 Billboard Country Airplay charts, which is based on, well, country airplay of the possible 52 slots Marin morris had a number one song for one week with girl then lindsey eli's duet with brantley gilbert titled what happens in a small town also spent a week at number one only two weeks out of the 52 possible 
had a number one song with a female voice. The other 50 weeks? Well, they were filled with the likes of Blake Shelton, Jason Aldean, Luke Bryan, and a few others. All in all, 45 of the 52 weeks had solo male artists at the summit. The five weeks unaccounted for belonged to Dan and Shay, a male duo, Old Dominion, a five-piece male group, and the male quartet Eli Young Band. In August of 2020, XM Playlist had a breakdown of the most played songs on today's country radio hits channel, The Highway. The most played artist was a solo male artist named Lee Bryce with his song, One of Them Girls, which at the time had 311 plays in the last 30 days. Eight more slots, occupied by male voices, stopping at Little Big Town's Wine, Beer, Whiskey. Little Big Town is a two-female, two-male group that had 209 spins in the past 30 days. We continue down, and then we happen upon the first solo female artist, Casey Ballerini. She had 183 spins. Out of the top 50 most played on the highway in the last 30 days, 40, 4-0, featured no female vocalists. Now, one could say that men have songs that hit with the audience. Others could argue, if you aren't giving equal opportunity, how can a woman have a hit? Now, I use the terms male and female because many of the charts, many of the award ceremonies refer to artists as male or female. Now, the question is, are there more talented males than females? Or is it because males are given more opportunities than female? The last question reflects businesses and industries globally. Now, let's rewind 45 years before that. There were no female headliners on the Porter Wagner show, just a quote-unquote pretty little lady. Dolly occupied that spot that was once held by Grand Ole Opry members Norma Jean and Jeannie Seeley. In 1961, Norma Jean became the first woman to be featured heavily on the show, but she left in 1965. Now, when she left, rumors began circulating that this was due to an affair with Wagner. Now, others believe that she wanted to start a family with her new husband in Oklahoma City. Now, Jeannie Seeley, she joined as Norma Jean's replacement, but left after one year. Seeley had recorded a song that would ultimately become a hit record called Don't Touch Me. With a successful breakthrough hit, the promotional tourings took a toll. Jeannie realized that she could not be promotionally touring and at the Porter Wagner show at the same time. Now, on her official site, Jeannie jokes that she was replaced by Dolly Parton because Dolly's hits were bigger. Now, from 1967 to 1974, Dolly played the part of the girl singer. Her debut would also feature Dolly singing Dumb Blonde which coincidentally happened to be her first appearance on the Billboard Hot Country Singles charts. Now, it is said that during the debut, that it appeared the audience did not take to her. The audience booed. The audience of the Wagner show was familiar with female voices that were not like Dolly's. Dolly had a high-pitched voice, which some can refer to as a baby voice, and that was not something that the audience wanted to hear. They didn't want the soprano singing. Now, Dolly wasn't the first and wouldn't be the last artist to be booed during a live broadcast. But the audience reaction didn't stop Porter from keeping Dolly on the show. Eventually, she won the crowd over. During her time on the show, Dolly and Porter Wagner released 12 studio albums together, with an additional album being comprised of previously unreleased duet material. Now, what started out as a mentor-mentee relationship grew to a sort of partnership, at times, it was amazing, and at times, tumultuous. Now, sales and critical acclaim helped nourish this relationship. 
at award ceremonies, some of which you can find online, they win awards and it is solely Wagner who speaks during the acceptance portion of the awards. Dolly is at his side. It was a sign of the times. It was his show. She was just the girl singer. At the 1970 Country Music Association Awards, which we will post a video link on Instagram, Dolly arrives at the podium, and every couple of seconds it appears she is about to speak, but then doesn't. Towards the conclusion, Porter Wagner says, thank you, and Dolly quietly says, thank you so much. And then Porter gets the last words in with, when you're hot, you're hot. Now, Dolly's initial tenure was going to be five years. She stayed longer. Actually, two more years. Now, Dolly Parton wanted to go her own way. She wanted to be the main girl and not the side girl. Her music began to change. Her songs became more independent. During an interview with Country Music Television's 40 Greatest Love Songs, Dolly said, We fought a lot. We were very much alike. We were both stubborn. We both believed that we knew what was best for us. Well, he believed he knew what was best for me, and I believed I knew what was best for me at the time. So needless to say, there was a lot of grief and heartache there, and he just wasn't listening to my reasoning for going. Now, Parton thought he's never going to listen. So she told herself, well, why don't you do what you do best? Why don't you just write the song? Because I knew at the time I was going to go no matter what. So I went home, and out of a very emotional place in me, I wrote the song, I Will Always Love You. Dolly went to Wagner's office. She was planning on leaving. When you listen to the lyrics, you can see exactly where she was in her life. If I should stay, I would only be in your way. So I'll go, but I know I'll think of you each step. Of the way. Now, Porter Wagner said he would let her go as long as he could produce the song. Parton agreed. Now, she didn't have to, but she did. Dolly has been one of those artists who avoids burning bridges throughout her career. This is one of those moments. The song was officially recorded in June of 1973. Now, Dolly stated that the demo for the song and Jolene were from the same writing session. June 1974, the song became a hit record and went number one on Billboard's Hot Country Songs. Hopping out for a quick second to remind you, if you are enjoying this show, please rate it right now on Spotify and Apple Podcast. All of those do in fact help us. Thank you so much, and don't forget to join me on Instagram, the.original.doll. Back to the show. In June of 1975, a screenwriter named Lawrence Kasdan finished writing a script called The Bodyguard. Now, at the time, there were names being thrown around for the project that included leading men, Steve McQueen and Ryan O'Neill, and with superstar Diana Ross. While Kasdan was shopping his film script around Hollywood, something was cooking in Nashville. The king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley, well, his team reached out to Dolly about covering her song, I Will Always Love You. Dolly has discussed this more openly in recent years. She showed up at the recording studio and Elvis's manager, Colonel Tom, said, Elvis will record this, but, as with his other recordings, he will need half-publishing rights. 
which would mean he would own half of the song forever. At that moment, Dolly owned 100% of the publishing. As the public knows, Dolly grew up very poor and has discussed that she was leaving her art, her music, so that she would be able to leave food on the table for her family long after she has passed. Dolly declined. She chose to keep her art and ownership of the publishing. This decision would ultimately lead to one of the biggest recordings of all time. In March 1979, a few years after Porter was no longer producing Dolly's music, he filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit. It came down to money. Wagner believed he was owed more money than he had received. The suit was settled out of court. As I mentioned, Dolly and Porter had released a 13th album together, which was a compilation of some unreleased duets material with updated music and vocals. This was released in August of 1980. The album, titled Porter and Dolly, did not feature cover art with the artists together. It appears it is just a cut and paste of both artists from other photo shoots. Now, for those who are into music and contracts and recording industry, oftentimes you will see a recording artist record a greatest hits album or release a Christmas album. Many times, that's to fulfill a album or contractual obligation to the label. Could this 13th album have been part of the out-of-court agreement? Since the details are confidential, one will never know. Now, while this was happening, screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan was not getting the bodyguard any further than casting. He would continue to co-write other successful films as The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now, in October of 1982, I Will Always Love You returned to the charts and became a number one song again for Dolly Parton. She re-recorded the vocals for the soundtrack The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas based off of the musical. This was, and still is, a rare achievement to earn a number one record twice with the same song. Little did Dolly know that in another decade, it would shatter even more records. Now in 1983, Kasdan was seeing more success with his playwrights. In 1983, Lawrence Kasdan would receive more success and acclaim for The Return of the Jedi and The Big Chill. During production of the 1985 film Silverado, Costner met with screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan and discussed producing the film The Bodyguard together. On April 13, 1989, at the Soul Train Music Awards, another artist was having a rough time on live broadcast. Her name? Whitney Elizabeth Houston. We all know the acclaim and commercial hits Whitney had at this point. During the presentation of Best Female Urban and R&B Single, you can hear cheers for fellow nominee Anita Baker. But when Whitney is announced, well, the audience takes a different tone. They boo her. Now, why are they booing? In Sissy Houston's 2013 memoir, Remembering Whitney, My Story of Love, Loss, and the Night the Music Stopped, Sissy recalled hearing an audience member screaming, Y-T, Y-T. Instead of Whitney, Whitney. Audiences were upset with Whitney Houston 
because her music was seen as pop and not R&B. They did not see Whitney as an R&B artist. They saw her as a white pop star. Fast forward again to November 1992. The Bodyguard soundtrack was released. Now, how did I Will Always Love You end up on the soundtrack that, as of November 2017, sold 18 million copies in the U.S. alone? In the fall of 1990, film superstar Kevin Costner invited music producer David Foster and his soon-to-be wife and writing partner, Linda Thompson, to the Dances with Wolves premiere. At the premiere, Costner told David he was working on a movie project that David might be the right person for. November 6, 1990. Whitney Houston was announced as the performer for the Star-Spangled Banner at Super Bowl XXV in Tampa. On January 27, 1991, Whitney lip-synced her show-stopping rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner. Now, many people may say, wait, what? Did you say lip-sync? This is Whitney Houston, after all. The answer, yes. Whitney did lip-sync. She actually recorded her version in one take in Los Angeles prior. The NFL opted for a pre-recorded and pre-approved version of the song. Now, some fans and viewers were upset when they found out that she was lip-syncing. I mean, she was known for her voice. And here's the thing. You still hear her voice. You hear her emotion. You see her performing live. That was all Whitney. While this was happening, Kevin Costner had put the bodyguard on hold until Whitney said yes and was able to film. Costner filmed JFK and Robin Hood during this hiatus. On the January 14, 1992 episode of The Tonight Show, with then-guest host Jay Leno, Kevin said it took three years to get Houston. Now on the business side, having a superstar portraying a singer in a film, well, that meant that you could easily attach a soundtrack. It worked for Dick Tracy with the soundtrack I'm Breathless, which featured Madonna's Vogue. In April of 1992, the soundtrack to Wayne's World would spend two weeks at number one on the Billboard Top 200 charts. In his 2013 memoir, The Soundtrack of My Life, Clive Davis recounts having written a letter to the director and the producer of the film, as well as Whitney. In the letter, Davis wrote that he was filled with happiness for Houston's portrayal and offered a fax with the suggestion on how to improve the film. It came down to the music. He said it could be stronger. Now, he did not receive a response for about a month. Then, Costner reached out and said he agreed with the suggestion. Now, for the Bodyguard soundtrack, the plan was for a big song. And at first, it was going to be Jimmy Ruffin's 1966 top 10 hit, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted. David Foster recorded himself doing two different demos and played them for Whitney. She felt that it was not right for her. The universe agreed, and the song found itself recorded in 1991 by Paul Young and was released in January of 1992 for the Fried Green Tomato soundtrack. Now, this ultimately put a nail in the coffin of the song being on the Bodyguard soundtrack. Upon hearing that What Becomes of the Broken Hearted was no longer available, Kevin Costner recommended I Will Always Love You. Now, Costner's secretary reached out to Dolly for a copy of the song. David Foster went to a music store in Malibu and ended up buying the Linda Ronstadt version of the song. Foster called his friend Dolly and let her know that Whitney was going to be recording her song. It was during this call that Foster realized that the Linda Ronstadt version omitted the third verse. 
whole life treats you kind and I hope that you have all that you ever dreamed of and I wish you joy and happiness but above all of as the composer David Foster had planned on having Whitney open the song with her vocals accompanied by a guitar. Now, Kevin Costner said he did not see that. He said he saw her doing the intro with no music. He said it would be more dramatic. He wanted a cappella. Now, Foster didn't see radio playing an a cappella opening of a song. So he told Costner, you can use that version for the movie, but for radio, I'm going to add music to the intro. Now, production of the film, The Bodyguard, was happening at the same time that the music was being recorded. Now, at Houston's request, the band was going to be playing live while she sang I Will Always Love You, which happened to be at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Florida. As David Foster heard the intro, he decided to go with Costner's suggestion of an a cappella opening. If I should stay I would only be in your way. Now, as many people know, there were many players during these stories, during these events, during these recordings. Each player often has their own version of what happened. For the purpose of this soundtrack, these are the versions that we are using. It was actually said by Whitney herself with a video online that she had heard Dolly's version of it and was not feeling I Will Always Love You. And that it was Costner who urged Houston to take a second listen. She did, and her mind was changed. In his memoir, Clive Davis stated he received an underproduced version of the song that David Foster had sent him. Now, with the deadline for the single approaching, the studio was hoping to push the song out in order to promote the movie to a larger audience. Davis mastered the version he received and released it. David Foster was upset. Now, this was someone in the recording industry taking the music into their own hands and making the ultimate decision, something that has happened to artists from the past to the present and will most likely happen in the future. On November 3rd, 1992, I Will Always Love You was released as the first single from the Bodyguard soundtrack. It took two weeks to hit number one on Billboard's Hot 100, but it stayed there for an astonishing 14 weeks. If you're a fan of the Bodyguard soundtrack, check out my interview with Judd Friedman and Alan Rich, where we talk about their song for the soundtrack, Bodyguard, Run To You, and how Run To You had different lyrics originally. You can go ahead and go on Apple Podcast or Spotify. Look for Run to You, Alan Rich, Judd Friedman. Now back to the show. Now let's travel back to Nashville. Dolly Parton was driving from her office to her residence in Brentwood, Tennessee. She had the radio on, and she heard this a cappella song. It sounded familiar to her, but she couldn't quite nail down where it was from. She did think it was odd to hear an a cappella opening to a song. 45 seconds later, Instrumentation came in, and Dolly knew. I'll think of you every step of the way. 
and Dolly Parton almost crashed her car upon realizing it was her song. Now Dolly said this rendition was one of the biggest thrills of her life. About five months later, another southern-born girl was singing I Will Always Love You, as she said goodbye to her hometown of Kentwood, Louisiana. That girl, Britney Spears. Little did she know that much like Dolly Parton, people would poke fun at her voice, or her baby voice. And like Whitney Houston, people would mock her. All three would have moments on television that had the audience questioning, why are they there to begin with? All three would support their families with their art. All three would take a turn being in a film, utilizing their singing skills. All three would have careers that lasted decades. All three are Grammy winners. All three have albums that went number one. All three have had singles that topped the charts. And in their respective fields, all three are considered top tier. Now they are each their own person, with their own style, their own voice. And yet, have more in common than one might think. Thank you for joining me today. Don't forget to rate the show. Follow me on Instagram, the.original.doll. I'll see you on the flip side. The original doll.